This is one of those passages that you've probably heard preached numerous times. Maybe read for yourself in your devotional time with the Lord. Have uh, maybe memorized portions of this, the, the Beatitudes. And um, this morning as we, as we come to this passage and as we, as we think about Luke chapter 6, originally my goal was to make it from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, which is about uh, 33 verses or so, but I, I think we're just going to camp on the first three verses this morning, <laughs> kind of lay a foundation for, for what Jesus is trying to establish as it relates to discipleship, because it's not until we understand what discipleship is that we'll, that we'll really be able to register with the teaching that Jesus is communicating through the scripture, what Jesus is communicating through this sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at this for just briefly this morning, and we're going to have some, some baptisms a little later on. It kind of re- reinforces uh, the, the point of this message and what is true discipleship, and we'll be able to see the, the work of God in the hearts and lives of at least four individuals today as, as God has, has led them to himself, and now they're on this journey, this journey of discipleship. How would you define discipleship? How would you describe discipleship? What is a true disciple? What does a disciple look like? What are the features of discipleship that should be true of every person that calls themselves a Christian? And what are the things that you would expect Jesus to focus in on as he is describing discipleship to a number of individuals who are, who are coming to follow after him, what are the things that Jesus is going to draw attention to, the things that he is going to park on, as it were, the things that he is going to, to highlight and, and help these followers of his to grasp what true discipleship's all about? Notice with me in chapter 6, verse 17, It says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and people uh, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. We can see here at the outset of our passage today, we can see this gathering of what I've called would-be disciples. A gathering of would-be disciples or, or potential disciples. Those who, who have coupled themselves in some way, whether strongly or loosely to Jesus' ministry, who, who are following after him in some respects and are attracted in, in some way, as what we'll see in this passage, attracted to this distinctiveness of Jesus and the ministry that he is bringing in this context. I want to draw out some observations as we make our way through. The first observation is to notice the diversity of the crowd. I want you to notice the diversity of this crowd. Luke, in, in creating this account, of course, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says on, on, in, in two ways, or uses in two cases in, in this verse, draws attention to the the size or the magnitude of this crowd. He says, a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people. He uses the word polus, which is the Greek word for great. 
And especially speaking of the disciples, I want you to recognize we're not just talking about the 12 apostles. We're talking about a group of individuals who have aligned themselves, who have committed themselves in some way to Jesus' ministry so that they would say that Jesus then is the rabbi. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is this religious leader. And they have coupled themselves to his ministry and have been spending time serving with Jesus, following Jesus, observing his life, recognizing the miracles that Jesus is performing and coming to a place of familiarity with Jesus' life and ministry to the extent that they're called disciples not just fringe followers. These are people who are, in a sense, all in. And here they are. But not just the disciples, not just this group of committed followers, but we see a a great multitude of people coming from lots of different places. They're coming from Judea. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from Tyre and Sidon. Judea is not just the place of Judah, but also Galilee. This is kind of the Israel proper, as it were. This region that was known as the promised land, the, the place where the, the children of Israel would, would reside formally. There are two things that I find about this statement, the, the fact that there's diversity in this crowd that is both encouraging but also terrifying. In recognizing the diversity of the crowd, in recognizing the availability of Jesus, in coming to terms with his accessibility, Jesus was a man who welcomed people to follow after him. We're going to see he he didn't push them away. He, He didn't hold them at arm's length. He he didn't consider them a nuisance. He he didn't try to to, to create some space. You're, you're suffocating me a little bit here. But, but he, was, he was willing to be spent and to spend himself for the sake of ministry to this diverse crowd. People who would consider themselves Jew, Jewish by heritage, who, who would have some knowledge and, and familiarity with the, with the law, who, who would be on, on some terms of, 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 of continuum of, of spiritual things. But then those who were coming from Jerusalem, who who were certainly a part of the religious elite, those who were from the religious establishment, from the the religious center of Israel, and and here they are. They're here as well. They're they're coming to to see who is this Jesus? What is this this prophet, this teacher, this this rabbi? And, And what does he have to offer? Jesus is accessible to them. He's willing to be scrutinized. He's willing to be evaluated. He's willing to allow these religious individuals, wherever they are on the continuum of faith, to to be part of of his ministry in coming to listen to what he has to say and coming to benefit from his healing ministry as well. But also, and maybe even surprisingly, we find this group of individuals from Tyre and Sidon which was an area north and to the west of Israel, predominantly Gentile, and yet here they are as well. Perhaps some Gentile holdouts, those who were exploring devout uh, Gentiles that we'll find through the, the, the book of Acts who have some 
knowledge of God and have aligned themselves in some way with the Mosaic law, but, but, are, but are still considered Gentiles in their posture. And certainly, there were Jews who had been driven from the main parts of Israel, had found themselves in Tyre and Sidon, and are now making their way back to where Jesus is to hear of this teacher. So it is encouraging to know that the ministry of Christ was accessible. But it's also a little troubling. It's troubling because what we're going to see in just a little bit is that while they are called disciples, and and while this massive crowd begins to assemble around Jesus, while they seem to have some evidence of faith in their life, at least they are coming to, to hear his teaching. They're marveling at his words. They're enjoying the benefits of his healing ministry. That the thousands of individuals who are, who are thronging around Christ's ministry at this point will, will become a trickle, will become a remnant, will become just a, a small scattering or sprinkling of individuals in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 1. So there's only 120 who are left. And so while there are tens of thousands potentially who are part of his ministry, multitudes of disciples, multitudes of followers, those who are coming from all around and who are, who are demonstrating some affection and, and interest in Christ's ministry at this point, they're really counterfeit their discipleship and following after Jesus was just temporary. And that's what Jesus will begin to to key in on, is that true discipleship comes comes because of true faith, and the faith that stands the test of time. Jesus, his would-be followers, would would eventually leave him, and and Jesus would, would in some sense drive them away. Uh, We see a bit of that in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 61, right after the feeding of the 5,000, where there were just 5,000 men. There could have been as many as 15 to 20,000 people who were present during the teaching ministry of Jesus during this feeding of the 5,000 and who, who had followed him out into the wilderness and Jesus was ministering to them. But as a result of some very, very difficult words some polarizing statements of Christ to these would-be followers, this is what we find. When many of his disciples heard it, this is, remember, this is Jesus talking about eating his flesh and and drinking his blood, these hard words. Is this guy off his rocker? Is he insane? What is going on with this guy? And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So Jesus, instead of just smoothing things out and trying to help accommodate the, the, the conflict in their heart, actually forces the issue. And as a result of forcing the issue, we find in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to to recognize that while Jesus in welcoming sinners, Jesus in appealing and inviting the world to come and to enjoy the benefits of faith in him, 
That even in, in coming and participating in a, in a ministry of teaching and hearing and learning and following after him for, for months and weeks, that eventually the superficiality and the counterfeit nature of their faith would be evidenced in they would no longer walk with him. The truth, the truth is, Jesus wasn't interested in a mega church movement. Jesus was interested in true discipleship. So he will actually make statements to drive people away. He will challenge their broken view of religion and worship. He will confront their cultural norms. He will undo the conventional wisdom. And eventually, he'll even speak in parables so that he don't even understand what is going on. They don't understand the message. And Jesus will do this because fundamentally, Jesus believes not in his effort to draw people to himself, but he has anchored his confidence in the power of the Spirit to draw people to spiritual life, to convict hearts, to breathe spiritual life into hearts of dead spiritual hearts. Jesus is demonstrating his commitment to the power of the Spirit that we're going to see in just a little bit. The sermon that follows in this chapter would just be the beginning of this kind of ministry that Jesus will have. (laughs) These polarizing statements that are meant to unsettle. And yet while the audience was diverse, I want you to notice in verse 18, I want you to notice the purpose for their coming. The purpose for their coming that we find here in verse 18. It says they came to him to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. What, what, what's the twofold purpose of their coming? What do you say? They came to hear and they came to be healed, right? You see, they recognize that there's something unique about Jesus. <laughs> they recognize that, that Jesus has something of substance. That in coming to hear Jesus, his words actually possess authority. His words actually were able to address the deeper parts of their own heart and life. That that Jesus was speaking in a way that was reinforced by power. The power of the Spirit marked the ministry and life of Jesus. And Jesus actually cares about them. Jesus doesn't push them away. He's not like the religious elite who use the crowd to belittle them and to prop themselves up, Jesus associates with a tax collector and sinner. He associates with with them. He takes an interest in their needs. He comes to their hometown. He is welcomed into their very homes. He addresses their unique problems. He ministers to them regardless of their social standing their personal baggage, and the debilitating brokenness of their spiritual life doesn't seem to matter to Jesus in terms of his willingness to to walk with them and to teach them and to heal them and to encourage them. Jesus is willing to draw them to himself and allow the word of God and the spirit of God to create the distance where it needs to create distance. 
Notice as well, notice the condition for their healing. You might also put it the the prerequisite for their healing. What were the conditions that they needed to meet in order to experience and receive the healing ministry that Christ was willing to offer? Do you see the condition? Well, the condition was that they come, which means that their condition was predicated upon believing, believing that Jesus was able to, to fix their brokenness. And so when they come, they come with their brokenness. They come with their problems. They come with their diseases. They come with their demon possession. They they come as broken individuals for the Savior, the physician, to heal their brokenness. Faith has drawn them. They're believing in Christ to heal. However superficial that might be, it was the beginnings of faith in God and trusting that God through Christ could accomplish the the issues that they needed to have accomplished for them. And they understood that there was some authority to his preaching and teaching. And as they come, no disease is uncured. No demon too strong. No person too insignificant. No background too remote. Jesus healed them all. No one is turned away. And the power of God was present to accomplish that work. They bring, as I said, their brokenness. (laughs) And they bring their believing, their faith in God. They didn't try to dress up their problem, they didn't disguise their issue. They didn't conceal their disease. They don't downplay their problem. It was public. It was open. It was on display. It was right out there so that Jesus could address the issue that marked their life. It was there for all to see. And all of this happened without a priest, without a temple, without a sacrifice, without an altar, without a prayer, No religious merit or working, just faith. Just faith. And Jesus would heal immediately, completely, indiscriminately, and you might say universally, to all of those who came and believed. But Jesus is not primarily interested with the external. Jesus is not primarily interested in broken bodies, but he is primarily interested in the deepest parts of their brokenness. He is greatly interested in in resolving the sin problem, the brokenness that has them out of step with God. That's what Jesus came to do. And this healing of broken bodies was just an object lesson of what Jesus intended to do in dealing with the deepest parts of them. So that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, will say, He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You are healed. Jesus became wounded. He received our brokenness, was punished for our sinfulness, our rebellion, our wickedness. Jesus was punished for you and for me so that Jesus could resolve that brokenness with healing, with forgiveness. And the cure for the spiritual life is the same as the cure for the physical one. 
Not dressing up the outside. Not putting on religious robes. Not cleaning up one's behavior. Not earning some favor from God through some religious merit, but coming with faith alone and coming with your brokenness to receive healing that only comes from God. A complete abandonment of yourself to God. That's what requires. And that's what we find. That's what we find in the rest of this chapter. We find the healing ministry of Jesus as he seeks to address and deal with the deepest parts of these individuals, these would-be disciples who are coming. Fourth, I want you to notice the source of their healing. The source of their healing. Notice in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The The source of this healing was power. And not just any kind of power. The kind of power we've been talking about since the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. The kind of power that is, that is coming from the Spirit of God and the Word of God coupled together to accomplish this regenerative work of God to bring healing at the deepest level. The power of God was present this power, which is, dunam, which is the word dunamis, or this dynamite kind of power, explosive power that we've been learning about since the beginning of the gospel. And here it is, resident again, as it always was in the life and ministry of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit is bringing the power of God through the life of Jesus to address the needs of the people in front of him. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him because power came out from him and healed them all. Now Jesus turns from this outward physical healing to now begin to address the healing that he seeks to bring to the inside out. This is known as a Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew will kind of bring this story of the Sermon on the Mount, this message or sermon uh, from this mountain place he will bring to us in three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Luke will kind of summarize or consolidate this sermon in about 30 verses that we're going to cover next week. It goes from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. On the surface, it may read like a new version of the Ten Commandments. These rapid-fire commands, these imperatives that are given by Christ that begin in verse 27, like love your enemies. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Verse 29, turn the other cheek. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. Verse 37, judge not. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. And the list keeps going on and on. But I don't know about you, but, but on the surface, these commands are ridiculous. They are absolutely ridiculous from a human standpoint because they're, they're not only, they only confront the natural person. It's just not smart. It's not wise. It's certainly not responsible from a human standpoint. And, and the point of the commands is to get at the power of God to change your life, to help the disciple, the true disciple, to to trust in a being that is greater than themselves and to operate on the power that is not resident within them uh, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It is to, to point as a, as, a, as a pathway to the source of true spiritual uh, conversion or s- true spiritual change, and that is the power of the Spirit within. The point is to recognize that the only way to obey these commands is to operate in a strength that is outside of us and to operate on the strength that comes from God alone. There must be a fundamental change of heart, not just a dressing up of the outside, not an outward conformity, not an alignment of duty or to a law, but a fundamental change of heart that starts on the inside and then begins to work its way on the outside. True disciples need change. And so from verses 20 to the end of the chapter, he begins to to lay out the the kinds of changes that are necessary for true disciples. And just as a preview and maybe as a a means of homework for next week, I'm gonna gonna give you the the, the title or the theme of these these sections so that you can go back this week and and discover the answers and come, come back next Sunday prepared as we're walking through this so that you can see what is here. First, A true disciple needs a change of perspective in verses 20 to 26. A change of perspective. Notice, Jesus begins to talk about the blessed life. And this word blessed is the word happy or fortunate. But you look at the things that that Jesus considers as a blessed life and on the surface he will say, whatever, there is nothing blessed about that kind of life. Like, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, spurn your name as an evil on account of the Son of Man. That does not describe, in my opinion, a blessed life. But that's because my perspective is so short. I don't have the long perspective of life that Jesus is calling true disciples to. He wants us to to recognize that the true joy and true fullness and true satisfaction and true delight and true fullness and wealth and riches happen as we experience and understand the significance of our relationship with God and what is waiting for us in heaven one day as we prioritize the future life and recognize that this life is just temporary. He will go on to talk about great is your reward in heaven. He will talk about calling attention to the, to the kingdom of God and, and, and calling attention to, to recognizing that, that these things will come but, but recognize that, that Jesus is interested in, in a life that is pointing to Christ and satisfied in him regardless of your current circumstances. We need a perspective change. We'll look at that more next week. In verses 27 to 36, we'll recognize that true disciples need a change of motivation. A, cho- a change of motivation. And certainly love is on the surface as we read in verse 27. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. How is that even possible? Because that defies any logical explanation. And it's only possible as we look deeper into this set of verses and we recognize that the motivation for all of these behaviors 
is found in verse 35. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. And, and by the way, I don't want you to think about delayed gratification. That is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is your reward is God. Your reward is pointing to God, that your life is showcasing this merciful Father who has called you into relationship, who has called you a son, who has made you a child. That is the reward, and you get to show it off every day that you showcase the kind of behavior that is counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, because it is only a portrait of who God really is. So then in verse 36, we can be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And as we learned last week, we recognize that Jesus' whole goal of ministry was, was to point disciples to mercy. And so as our life shows the quality of mercy and showcases the character of the Father, then we become a conduit for people to see God through us. And that, my friends, is the blessing of discipleship. That is the goal of discipleship for us to point to the Father. In verses 37 to 42, we see that true disciples need a change of posture. A change of posture. <laughs> and, and we'll see this, especially in verse 40, where a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. This posture of humility, this posture of surrender, a posture of learning and submission to God as not only friend and teacher, but master and as we come to recognize the significance of a posture that reflects submission to the Father, we will be the kinds of disciples that are, that are drawing attention to the power within. So there's no other explanation for that kind of life than a life that has been changed by power. And finally, in verses 43 to 49, we're going to see the test of true discipleship. How do you know that you're a true disciple? How do you recognize the, the qualities of discipleship and, and how they are actually resident in your life? Well, we're going to see two tests here. The first test is the test of fruit in verses 43 and 44. We're going to look at the, the good tree and the bad tree and the, the fruit of how we speak, the fruit of our lips. And then finally, in verses 46 to 49, we'll see the test of the foundation what have you settled your life on? What have you built the house of your life on? And how does that demonstrate your commitment to God as master, as Lord, as sovereign, as ruler, the one who calls the shots of your life? The test of fruit and the test of foundation. Let's come back next week as we kind of press into those and see how the Holy Spirit will work his power in the life of true disciples who are open and interested in him carrying out that work and that Jesus in inviting, is inviting us all to enjoy and participate in that kind of ministry as we surrender ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the ministry of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the welcoming and inviting message on the mount that calls attention to true discipleship, 
that helps us understand what it means to, to be a true follower of Christ. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do it on our own. And we don't have to dress ourselves up. We don't have to put on the disguise. We don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That we, through the power of the Spirit and through the ministry of the Word, can fulfill the objectives that you've called us to as we walk in the steps of our Savior. Lord, now as we are encouraged by the example of your saving ministry in the lives of four individuals this morning, we pray that you would, uh, would work even now in the hearts of the congregation, those who do not know you as their Savior, that you would call them to salvation through the, the clear testimony of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.